Thanks for tuning in with Body Talk with Bex for another episode. This week, I had the pleasure of interviewing a woman named Crystal. She was born at just 26 weeks old, and although she wasn't technically diagnosed with anything until she was older, looking back in hindsight, she's able to see that she's probably been struggling with a lot of her current diagnoses for most of her life. And today I got to sit down and chat with her about all of these different things that she's had to struggle with and her journey to who she is now. And I really appreciated how positive her story wound up being and that she never gave up on being able to live her life. So let's just jump right on in. Okay, so let's start, I think, with the timeline would be easiest, possibly, of when each of your different things were diagnosed, unless it was all at the same time. It was kind of pretty much all at the same time, with the exception of, you know, things that happened at birth. Right. And, And then there was nothing, as far as my medical history goes until I was on TRICARE, which is the military's health insurance. So when I got married, when I was 22, and that's when we started piecing together, you know, okay, you have to have this extensive screening done before you can be cleared to go overseas because my husband got orders to go to Japan. And so, you know, you have to go through extensive health screening to make sure that you're not a health risk or a liability going over there as a dependent. And at that point, I still remember at that point, all I thought I had was asthma. (laughs) Boy, if I only had asthma. (laughs) And at the age of 22, I knew that I briefly remember kind of seeing a bruise on my left hip that just wasn't going away. And I, I really didn't think anything of it. I just thought it was just kind of odd that this bruise wasn't going away. And I, you know, didn't know where it could come from. I didn't even WebMD it. But to start at the beginning, uh, the very beginning, I was born at 26 weeks. I was one pound, 15 ounces. And I was born at the Fresno Children's Hospital in California. And I'm, I'm very thankful that I was born there because they have and had a wonderful uh, top-notch team even in the 80s. There's two photos that exist of me when I was born. They're both Polaroids. <laughs> and I mean, I was just so small, you know, just under two pounds. It's like, how do you, yeah, you know, I can't even, I mean, I had a nine pound baby, so I don't, you know, it's like, uh, crazy to think. My, sorry, I'm not interrupt, but my, my mom said when she was pregnant with my, with my brother, 
that they were mm-hmm. being given a tour and they thought he was going to have medical problems when he was born. So they mm-hmm. were showing her the, the preemie section mm-hmm. delivery. And she said that the babies that were about one, two pounds, they literally looked as big as like a mayonnaise jar. Yeah. That was for comparison for size. They were just so tiny, so tiny. Yeah. My mom, she would just always tell me, you know, you could just hold, I could hold you, you know, when I was allowed to in the palm of my hand and, you know, they had to, we had to wear baby doll clothes because there was nothing that was small enough. Yeah. And then until I was 22, I just thought I had asthma. And then I thought, boy, I'm, I'm pretty lucky, you know, for, for being born, you know, 26 weeks and um, I only had asthma, but coming to find out that it wasn't the case at all. And it was just kind of like a ignorance is bliss thing. And the situation that I was born into with my family life, things were challenging because I, I grew up in extreme poverty, but the poverty wasn't tra- uh, traumatizing, made things difficult. My mom and my dad, um, so my birth parents, they were both unable to take care of their children. So I have myself and my two older brothers, and both of my birth parents were extremely abusive. Um, so we went through, my brother and I, and my brother and I, well, yeah, there's two of them, but one is doing better than the other. We went in and out of children's homes and foster care, random family members that we thought were family. So until I was eight, there's no memory of my childhood. There's no memory of health concerns. There's nobody to ask about my health during that time. Were you kept with your brother that whole time? You guys weren't split up at all? We were split up. We, it was easier for me to be placed in foster care because I was a young, cute girl type thing. And then you had these two boys who were rowdy and the three of us never wanted to be separated ever. And in fact, you know, my older brother would tell me like, you know, him and my other brother, they would just be full on like the meanest, nastiest you know, most challenging kids until they put all three of us back together. But like, it was just kind of like that you're not splitting us up and we're going to wreak havoc and, you know, bring hell until you put us back together. So yeah, when I was eight, we moved to my grandma's house in Washington. And that's kind of where my childhood began that I can remember And, you know, my grandma told me things like I always walked funny and she would kind of fill me in on things that I didn't know before, but I was eight years old. So there wasn't a whole lot that she was going to go in on. And then it it wasn't alarming enough for her to take me to the hospital or see specialists. And then we moved in with my biological mother when I was eight and that situation wasn't any better than it was when I was much younger. So yeah, it's, uh, 
I know that the chronic illnesses that I have now have always been in the background. I've just managed without knowing that I'm managing. Right. So yeah, you know, it's kind of like, well, this is my life. I'm not going to run a marathon anytime soon. Uh, I walk funny, you know, all these things. And it's just like, it just becomes a part of who you are. And it's not, you don't, I never knew that I wasn't, not that I wasn't supposed to be this way, but that there was an explanation for it other than this is just who I was. And it's not, I hate to use the word normal, but it's not normal to have a gait that I do. And it's not normal when they say you have asthma, but none of the asthma inhalers seem to be working. And you have scleroderma, which if you Google it, the first thing you see is terminal illness. So it was just, you know, it's definitely harder to put things back together. It's like going back in time and, and doing these puzzles where everything is blank. You're not really sure where the pieces go. That makes sense. Yeah. So for you, it was like your normal. It was your normal until you doubt that these were actually things that could be to a certain extent, either be put on medication and treated or, you know, different things like that. And right. Yeah. It's more so now I'm an advocate for my health now because one, I'm a mother and two, I've already gone 37 years of, of, of walking a certain way and, and breathing and having these challenges and these difficulties medically. I don't want to be 67 years old and just starting then to right. sort all of this out. And it's hard because there's nobody to ask. You know, I can't ask my birth mother. She's her cognitive abilities to recall events is just not there. And her and I are estranged. My father and I are estranged. So it's just better. And factually speaking, it's easier for me to figure it out on my own than it is to go to anybody else outside of my brother to ask them for their input. Yeah, that makes sense. So you mentioned you were born at the Fresno hospital Mm -hmm. and that they actually had a pretty good handle on dealing with babies that are born early. Do you, do you know how they handled that? Like, were you held in the hospital for a certain amount of time before being sent home? Do you know anything about that? Yes. Um, I was at the hospital until I was six months old. Um, yeah. And then, yeah. And then I had a hole in my heart and my lungs were underdeveloped. So they had to put me on um, mechanical ventilation and then they had to go in and repair the hole in my heart because of the mechanical ventilation. And I only found out this recently, like within the last two years, because of the mechanical ventilation and being born premature, I have a type of COPD, 
It's actually called BPD, but it is from mechanical ventilation. And it happens when it's like uh, scarring in your lungs because it's just not natural for your lungs to have a machine breathing for you. Right. And does that, and so on. I'm sorry. Didn't no, you? no, go ahead. I was just wondering, does that weaken the lungs to have the scarring? Can that attribute for part of the asthma-like symptoms? Yes, yeah. it does. And on top of that, the smaller airways in my lungs don't exist. <laughs> so oh. the, the very smaller pleuri or pleuri in my, in my deeper part of my lungs, they're just not there. <laughs> so as my pulmonologist explained it to me, he was like, you know, your lungs look like a tree branch and he's like your branches they just got pruned way too short you know and he's like you're not going to run any marathons anytime soon he's like you're just not going to be a runner and like you're going to run out of you're going to have to take things a little slower you know even if you are in the best shape he's like that's not going to change your lung capacity right and so that is what I was always chasing when I would see pulmonologists uh, pulmonologist and you know I would go in and I'd say okay this albuterol isn't working I'm having to take this so many times a day and you know they're giving me pulmonary function tests and it's coming back and I'm failing them and then they're like well try this and they're coming at it from an asthma perspective and it's not asthma it's uh, pulmonary disease and so Interestingly enough, my pulmonologist specialized in premature infants, which is why he was able to connect the two that this is not, yes, you have asthma, but this is not just asthma. Right. Yeah. And the other complication on, for my heart is that I have a regurgitating heart valve. Mm. So sometimes it's like a, the best way to describe it is a murmur. But my cardiologist says I don't really have to worry about that until I'm like 65. And I said, well, what is there to worry about when I'm 65? Right. Should I be doing something right now? And then I have high blood pressure, which is very scary. Yesterday, I went into a hypertension crisis and my blood pressure was 189 over 110. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And that's on me though. That's on me because I, among the many things I forgot to take my meds and I hadn't taken my meds and obviously way too long. It's scary for sure. Oh yeah. I, I have high blood pressure too. So I understand yeah. that, that balance of taking medication yeah. and having it be a little higher than it's supposed to be. Yeah. But then you get that blood pressure headache and you're like, why does my head hurt so bad? Hold on. What's my blood pressure like? <laughs> I have a tendency to not take my blood pressure for a while. And then, yeah, I'll take it and realize, oh yeah, I haven't taken my meds in like two days. And that's why it's really high and I'm having problems. I should probably take my medication. So. Right. <laughs> yeah, I do that too. I don't think my blood pressure has ever gotten nearly as high as that number though. That's pretty scary. I've had. Yeah. I've had like 149 over like 110, I think, is what I was at for a long time consistently. And the scary part for me was, you know, with my husband being deployed, 
what would happen to my daughter if something happened to me? I mean, we have plans in place, but you know, that's, that's just got to get me, that puts me in this mindset, like get it together, like find a system. You need to stick to this. And and I think that that just goes to say for everybody, it really is you first Yeah. and take care of your health because nobody is going to do it for you. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it sounds like you were born in the right hospital, luckily, that they were able to take care of you. And you're so lucky to even be here, it sounds like. I didn't, you, I don't think you told me originally about the hole in your heart and everything with your lungs. That's, that was all new to me just now. Yeah. That's a lot to start off with. I mean, you, you, <laughs> you're starting life yeah. a little bit behind the starting line and, and you rose up and met the challenge. So, yeah. And so um, I guess I was just ready to meet this world and said, you know, yeah. forget the last trimester. I'm um, ready. Let's to just come out now. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> whatever this purpose is, I'm here. Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah. So. So I guess you've been dealing with most of this your whole life and just didn't really know it. So when, when were you starting to get your different diagnoses from doctors? Like when did you start seeing a doctor and actually finding out, Oh, this is not. I actually just started in Japan from all places. As I mentioned before we left for Japan, I had this bruise on my hip. Yeah, um, that didn't really didn't seem to go away, and I could feel like this massive tissue underneath it, and so it scared me because I thought, you know, is it a tumor? Like, what's going on? And I didn't think anything of it. We went to Japan, and I had it biopsied, and then nothing, nothing came of it. But I did notice that the what appeared to be this bruise that didn't hurt, but it looked like a bruise. And it was tightening underneath of the bruise. So the, the, the tissue is becoming less flexible. And when I told my primary doctor that, you know, they did the biopsy because they just wanted to check for cancer because that's what you do, right? Right. And it came back, you know, no cancer. But because it was spreading, they sent me to see a dermatologist in, in the other naval base in Japan. So I went there. They biopsied the same side, which was not fun. <laughs> like, and they looked at it and I, I swear, I kind of, I feel like I watched the dermatologist Google what she thought it was. Fair enough. I mean, look, I get it. You know, you can only be an expert in so many things. <laughs> and she told me, you know, that's when I first heard the word scleroderma. And I was like, how do you even spell that? So, you know, I get home and I do my Google search and you see the words terminal five years, five to seven years. And I was in shock. Like, what? And here I am not knowing anything, how to navigate the medical world at all. It was not my rabbit hole nor my real house. And so I just honestly was in shock. My dermatologist at that point uh, had me medevaced from Japan to Hawaii. So the Tripler Army Medical Center, because they had a specialist there that knew more about scleroderma. And 
they needed to determine if it was the terminal kind or the kind that you're you're just going to have for the rest of your life and it's going to be annoying and it's going to cause you some irritation and some pain. Big difference between those two. <laughs> right, right. So I went there, they ran some tests, they did some blood work, they were looking for a positive test, something called an ANA 70, I think it was. And that came back negative. And because that came back negative, they told me that you don't have the terminal scleroderma. You just have what is known as localized scleroderma. Thank goodness. (laughs) Right, right. And I said, okay, so life's just going to kind of suck, you know. Or be more challenging. Yeah. And they're like, you know, yeah, it, this could kind of, kind of like a spectrum. You could just have tissue involvement. You could, you could end up with Raynaud's and you could have, you know, calcium, calcium deficiency. Yeah. Um, but it's not, it's not terminal. And I was like, okay. And there's no internal organ involvement, which is the big separator between the ter- uh, terminal and non-terminal. And scleroderma just means hardening of the skin. And when it's terminal, you start getting hardening of the lungs and the organs and things like that. So when we found out all the information, we were really relieved. And of course, we couldn't stay in Japan anymore because I I wasn't healthy. And so we went to Virginia and we ended up living in Virginia. At that point, I started seeing Navy doctors at the Naval Hospital there. And locally in Virginia Beach where I'd lived and that's when I started seeing pulmonology and they started doing pulmonary function tests and it was just really hard for me to keep a job because you know when you start to get I think at one point I had seven different specialists and how do you how do you keep a job when you're constantly having to go to the doctor and so at that point was when they were telling me like, yes, you know, you have high blood pressure. So you're going to go on this medication. And I was going to get the UVB UVB treatment, light treatment to soften my skin. I was having that done twice a week at the hospital. I was seeing dermatology. They were giving me creams, steroid creams, to try and soften the tissue. I was doing steroid injections into my ankles to soften the tissue. And so it was just kind of all of these doctor's appointments constantly. And eventually it got to a point where, you know, I started seeing osteo for Raynaud's. And then, you know, I don't know if you feel like this, but for me, I was collecting autoimmune disorders, like Girl Scout badges. Like it just seemed to just every time I went to the doctor, they were like, oh, well, fibromyalgia, what the hell, (laughs) you know, and uh, that's the only explanation you have for my joint pain, like, or, you know, Raynaud's and, you know, then you like, I, I got to a point where I was just tired of going. Yeah. And I just said, what would happen? What's the worst that could happen if I just stopped these doctor's appointments? Because I've done this for years now. I'm not getting better. And all I'm doing is wasting time. I'm unable to keep a job. What would happen if I just stopped? And, you know, obviously, you know, take my inhaler, take my blood pressure medicine. But like everything else, you know, I'm just tired of it. It's causing me stress. 
And that has been the biggest illness of all of them is stress. Yeah. And I think when you're chronically ill, for me, that was the worst of all of the diagnosis that I've had was the trauma and the, the stress. And so it ended up being at that point, I stopped everything as far as the scleroderma and the nods and the, you know, throwing darts in the dark. I've tried this med, try that med. I even went to a scleroderma conference and, you know, sat in on things and because I needed to know, is this genetic? Am I going to pass this down to my kids? Can yeah. I have kids? And when I stopped the treatment for the scleroderma, we decided, you know, hey, let's have kids. And, and we had always been trying. Nothing was happening. And so I went to fertility. They were like, oh, you have polycystic ovarian syndrome. <laughs> like, sure. I was like, what? Fine. Right. I was like, okay. You were like, do I qualify for like a free meal? Is this like so many punches on the punch card? Like, <laughs> yeah, I get something free, right? Is there a jacket? <laughs> and they're like, that's why you're having troubles getting pregnant because your testosterone is too high or whatever they said. And they're like, oh, and you're pre-diabetic, pre-diabetic. <laughs> okay. So I went on metformin and they're like, oh, you need to lose weight. I'm like, that is so invalidating and and enraging when you go to see a doctor and they're like oh well if you lost weight you know these problems would go away but it took us six years to get pregnant with lily and we tried you know the intrauterine insemination that didn't work and then much like my scleroderma i just i just stopped everything i stopped the you know, the pills, I stopped the, the checkups, I, I stopped the lab work. I just chose not to be stressed out about it anymore. Because there wasn't anything else I could do because I was doing it. Right. Other than to not do anything, just let it be. And then we got pregnant with Lily. And then complications with my chronic illnesses and having Lily, my pregnancy was great. That's the best I'd felt ever in my life. I didn't have any complications with her. And they told me that when I went into labor, I had preeclampsia and they were like, it's not anything of much of a concern. Lots of women have it. And which was fine. I, I went in, they put me on magnesium, but where things took a really sharp left turn was when I was triple overdosed on magnesium in the hospital. Yeah. So yeah what? <laughs> yeah I was Is in the hospital for much or yeah so I was admitted on a Friday Friday morning and they didn't check my magnesium levels until Saturday night and at that point I had triple the amount of magnesium that I should have had in my system and which meant that our daughter had triple the amount of magnesium right and so they ordered an emergency c-section and, you know, my daughter's fine. She's perfectly healthy. I'm good. So I, I will say that. But it scares me to think that in her uh, report for her birth, it said that she was born unresponsive and floppy. And then she had to go to the NICU. It's, it was just horrific. <laughs> but, you know, we made it. And 
and I'm thankful for that, you know, I, yes. and she's healthy and, you know, I'm healthy. There was no long-term impact from that. That's good. That's, I mean, all you can really ask for from something like that. Yeah. Although it might've been a catalyst into having my thyroid removed, you know, from the stress. I don't know. Shortly after I had my daughter, I went into a thyroid storm. Um, so this was at the age of 26. I ended up with Graves disease. My resting heart rate when I was sleeping was 138. And I, I was losing my mind. My emotions were all over the place. Graves rage is a real thing. <laughs> and I, their response was, you know, try this drug for a short amount of time because it's not good for your liver. Your two options are radioactive iodine, <laughs> which sounds like I would turn into She-Hulk, um, or have your thyroid removed. And so here I am going, well, I can't have surgery because I have scleroderma. It, so if I already have a body that's overreactive and creating scars. I can't, I don't want to volunteer per se for surgery. I just had, you know, C-section. Yeah. Which was needed. But then thinking about radioactive iodine, like, my God, what are the reactions and adverse effects of that? (laughs) So I I chose to have my uh, full thyroidectomy. And now I, I take a pill every day. That's my thyroid. I, I sorted that out and it's been quite interesting. The, my body is just finds it's, I guess, settling point on the conditions that I have the, you know, in January, I think two years ago it was, yeah, I have both my, my tonsils and my adenoids removed. Wow. Which is, I would rather go to childbirth again three more times than to have my tonsils and my adenoids removed again. That was awful. (laughs) But yeah, right now I am actually scheduled to see neurology because my PCM thinks I might have cerebral palsy, which is not uncommon for premature babies. To have, and she said, given when you were born, the year that you were born, and how uh, premature you were, you have a more than likely chance that you have cerebral palsy, mild, but nonetheless. And I said, well, that might explain why I walk like a dancing duck, (laughs) and and it's not because you know, and I I tell lots of people this. I'm like, I'm not going because I'm self-conscious about the way that I walk. It's just the way that I walk. Uh, you know, it's been this way my whole life. I don't know any different. Um, of course, I was, I was bullied for it when I was a kid. And adults still ask me if I'm okay, because I look like I'm in pain. But it's because, I, as I said before, I'm 37. I don't want to deal with these problems and concerns when I'm 67. Right. Uh, so it's kind of like a preventative maintenance, if you will. Yeah prevent it from getting any worse or right right wow that's a lot of things that just got piled on there yeah yeah (laughs) so definitely a a puzzle yeah yeah so I'm I'm assuming then that none of the treatments that you were describing for scleroderma 
helped at all? No. It's disappointing. When, yeah, when I first got to, when we first got to Washington, you know, I have experience of Washington. um, And so I know like Virginia Mason is a wonderful cutting edge facility. Any operation in UW is wonderful. Lots of great health industries, you know, in the Seattle area. And so I went to Virginia Mason to a doctor that specializes in scleroderma because I wanted to know where I sat in this because it had been some time. And he gave me a definitive answer that, you know, no, you don't have in the terminal scleroderma. It's called systemic scleroderma. He's like, it's just localized. He's like, I'm going to send you over to dermatology and, you know, talk to them. So I went over to derm and they started me on methotrexate and which is chemo and a pill form. Okay. And that was to kind of reset my immune system, if you will. And at first I was like, okay, you know, I'll do it. It's, it's scary to think that it's chemo and they gave me some cream to use um, to try and soften my skin again so that my the joints that were impacted would be a little easier for me and then they also gave me I think it was like some steroid cream but the methotrexate didn't do anything I didn't receive any any resolve from any of that which was which is disappointing, but I kind of had to come to peace with my scleroderma because I couldn't do all of it. It was like it came to a point where I had to pick and choose which condition or disease I wanted to focus on yeah. per quarter of the year. You know, like, do you want to focus on your lungs? Okay, well, let's do that for the next two months. And, you know, when you're done with that, then let's focus on your allergies. We'll do that for two months because I couldn't do it all. It was just overwhelming. My life became doctor's appointments. You know, I lost who I was and I just became a number of, of a person, just a patient in and out of, of hospitals, of doctor's appointments. And I, I didn't want to be that person. Yeah. There was no, no way of life for me. And I thought, you know, I'll address it as it comes if it needs to be addressed. But until then, my plan going forward, it's just to kind of chunk this up. Like I'll, I'll take on this for this many months and then this, and then it was just more manageable that way. That makes sense. So, I mean, we've already kind of talked about all of these things are going to be lifelong issues that you're facing. You know, there, yeah. there's no as we just discussed with scleroderma, there's no just like one and done fix right. for everything. So how do they affect your daily life? Oh boy. <laughs> no, that's a big question, but. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's one, I've been married, you know, for over 15 years now. I think it would be a lot more concerning if I was in the dating world because, you know, the left side of my body looks like I fell down a flight of stairs and it, that's just the way that it is. And it'll stay that way because it's discolored. You know, I've come to accept my physical self 
on the outside of if I wear shorts, my legs are, are scarred up. You know, I have blood vessels that are just dilated. They're just going to be that way. And the respiratory concerns, the COPD and the asthma, that is actually the more, the most challenging. Well, I won't say the most challenging, but it's harder to slow down. I know I'm a mom, I'm wrapping up grad school, you know, I'm, I'm a human being, you know, we constantly live in a society of go, go, go. You're already behind the minute you wake up. Um, (laughs) Yeah. You know, and so it was, that was the hardest to adjust to. And then also advocating for myself to say to people around me, look, I can't walk that fast. Yeah. I need to take a break. And, you know, it's not just advocating when I'm around colleagues or friends or other family members. I had to learn to advocate even with my husband and my daughter to say, look, I, I need to take a break, you know, or we need to slow down. Can we slow down? And, you know, they're super supportive and they understand that I'm not going to, you know, I'm not Speedy Gonzalez, not going to run a mile, but it's definitely forced me to slow down and become more aware of my physical body and my mental health and how the two of them are very much connected. The mental health concerns and disabilities that I have are very much linked to my COPD and my asthma. Um, it's a comorbidity and it's, that is very difficult because I have complex post-traumatic stress disorder and I have anxiety and, you know, you go through these rounds of depression and what do you do when you have a panic attack or you're triggered and you already have high blood pressure? Like, and it's like, well, dang, like I got to sit down. Like I need to be away from people by myself. Like there's, it's not just like I've been triggered. It's I've been triggered and I already have heart condition. I already have crappy lungs. Like this is just escalated to a much more concerning matter. Right. So with all of those things and the things to come as life changes, I have a service dog, which yesterday we received our official letter from my doctor for him. And he helps me with many things. He reminds me that if I'm wheezing or if I'm coughing, he'll alert me that I need to use my inhaler or that I need to slow down because you know, as I mentioned, I'll just plow right through it. I'll be wheezing. I'll have chest pain and just keep going. And, you know, but he reminds me like, look, use wheezing and coughing, like use your inhaler or slow down. And he's great for grounding work for my triggers and my disassociation. He reminds me that I need to eat. He's an all around helper. Yeah. So that's kind of the most outward appearance that's changed. So now, you know, now I'm a person with a dog in Target. And and that's challenging too, because for a while you start to feel like an imposter. Like, 
I'm not really disciplined. Like, I don't really, re do I really need this dog? Am I, is it really that bad? Like, it could be worse. And it's like, no, no, no. Don't gaslight yourself. <laughs> like, you know, yeah, it could be worse, but that doesn't mean this shit isn't hard because yeah. it's hard. Yeah. And we as a society have to get out of that mindset of, oh, well, things could always be worse. Well, you know, you're just dismissing somebody's pain that they're in right now. And of course, it could always be worse, but do you see and hear them and feel them for where they are right now? Right. But yeah, the, and then, you know, I still, we still go out and do things. We hike six miles, you know, we're a very active family. Mom just moves a little slower. You know, I can only do so many trips up and down the stairs before I realize, okay, I'm going to fold this laundry downstairs. <laughs> Hasn't stopped me anyway. If anything, it's, it's forced me to look into being an advocate for myself, but not only for myself, for other people to take on the challenges of, of forcing people to hear those in, in the disabled community who don't look disabled. Yeah. And there's a giant stigma on that just because I don't look like I'm disabled. Does that mean that I'm not disabled? And I even have accommodations with my university because of my disabilities. And, you know, I have now my dog will be going to work with me in the school district. And so that's a new adventure for us. That's a lot. Yeah. I, I know how that feels. I get the comment all the time too, of people saying, Oh, you don't look like you you've ever had any problems or you don't look like you've ever had any medical issues and, you know, things like that. And, and like, yes, I'm grateful. I don't have some huge disfiguration on my face, but like at the same time, you can't just assume by looking at someone, what they've been through and right. How you think they should be treated based off of your assumptions of them from looking at them. Right. Right. And it's, you know, I always joke, and said that if I ever had a TED talk or if I ever gave this big speech, you know, I would start off because I'm, I'm certified in trauma-informed management for, edu- for education specifically and family application. And, you know, I always kind of thought of this idea that when I walk into a room, you know, you won't see Max, you know, If there comes a point where I need to use a cane or a walker, that will not be with me. And I'll just walk in the room and and we'll start talking. And at some point, I'm going to stop when I'm going to say, okay, well, now that I've shared a little bit about me, you know, that I've been happily married, that I have a brilliant daughter, that, you know, my my father-in-law is an electrical engineer for Boeing slash NASA, you know, this glamorous life, say hi to my service dog. (laughs) Like, And like, by the way, I got a 10 out of 10 on my ACEs score, which is the adverse, you know, um, child experiences score. It's for to score trauma in a child's life. And the higher you get, the more physical uh, complications that the child will have later on in life. And it's just to prove the point that what you see on the outside does not mean yeah. it 
equals to what is going on on the inside. Yeah. And, you know, there's a saying, be kind to everyone you meet because everyone is fighting a battle that you may know nothing about. And I really believe that. I should not have to put out there into the world or wear a billboard across my shirt that says, be kind to me because I'm disabled and I have CPTSD and, you know, dot, 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 this, this, this. People should just be kind because (laughs) the nice thing to do, you know, and I just always thought that that was completely backwards. And, you know, you, this accessibility and equitable opportunity, especially for those who do not present or appear to be disabled, is extremely difficult. If somebody was in a wheelchair, giving them access, in most cases, I know there's places out there, in most cases is a no-brainer. Right. But when somebody comes up and says, hey, can I be sat in a, in a quieter table? I know you're not sitting over there right now, but can I can we sit over there away from people? And they look at you and they're like, like you need to convince them as to why. <laughs> you know? A lot of work is still to be done when it comes to disability rights. Definitely. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I think a big part of it is being able to have a space where you can talk about it with people and where everyone yeah. hear everyone's experiences, not just, you know, you and me talking to each other, but someone who maybe hasn't had any issues can listen to the conversation and see how their interactions with us, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the challenge is now there's been places where I haven't been hired because, because of COVID and because of, you know, I asked during discussion of COVID protocols, you know, I said, I have asthma. What's the protocol for me to use my inhaler? Because obviously, you know, the mask is a barrier. Right. And, you know, I was told at no point in time, are you authorized to remove your mask? Even to use the inhaler? Even to use the inhaler. Because I asked, you know, I have asthma. What's your operating procedures for those who have asthma? I was told we don't hire uh, those who have asthma. And to which my response was in, in a request for an accommodation was I just need to use my inhaler. Uh, and that's when they told me at no point in time, are you authorized to remove your mask? So it's, you know, the pandemic in and of itself brings in this whole other layer of confusion and frustration I can understand from their perspective of not knowing but the law is the law if you don't know there's nothing wrong to say I don't know but you know can I circle back to you can we talk about that um at another time I'm going to find out for you there's nothing wrong in saying that no that's what Um, (laughs) that should be what you say I mean even in customer service, they tell you to use that kind of language when, you know, a customer asks, do you have this in the back? I don't know. Let me go check. I mean, right. Yeah. basic, you know, conversation skills when you don't know something. Right. Yeah. And 
just the uncertainty of trying to advocate for your own needs, but being scared to because you don't know, are they going to turn me down? Are they going to find a reason not to hire me? Right. And that's hard enough being chronically ill to always feel like you have to defend yourself or just kind of be on the defense going into a situation because you know, well, what if somebody brings this up? Well, what if somebody asks me and you live in this constant, you know, so many steps ahead and that's not healthy. And so finally I just had to come to terms with, you know, screw it. (laughs) Like we all got something going on just because I have a few more checks in the box does not mean anything. (laughs) Yeah. So it's, uh, it hasn't stopped me from doing anything that I've really wanted to do. Um, Yeah you know, just about done with my master's degree and looking at a doctorate program because uh, I must be crazy <laughs> and, you know, doing advocacy work for, you know, seeing kids out, you know, playing, especially the BIPOC community, you know, who's communicating to them? Are they getting their resources? Do they know that, these things exist for them and there's services that can help them. I don't want anybody to have to go through what I have gone through and be in their thirties or, you know, as an adult have to piece together their health because there was a barrier there, whether it be cultural, circumstantial, whatever the case may be, you know, it's not easy to go backwards in time. Yeah to put things together. Yeah. I mean, most of it, you're too young to remember what, yeah. you know, what's going on. And does it, it doesn't sound like you had very much support when you were younger in figuring out that you had issues, but I mean, what is your support system like now? You know, how does your husband take you to doctor's appointments or I mean, I know you've um, dog now to remind you to use your inhaler, which is great. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I joke and I say, he's the world's okayest service dog. Uh, but, <laughs> but yeah, no, my husband's great. He's my biggest advocate. And he's, in fact, I just messaged him and I told him about my high blood pressure. And he was just like, what the F? <laughs> and he's all like gently yelling at me through Facebook Messenger, <laughs> like, you know, you can't do that. You need to take your meds. I thought you had this set up. Like, but he's constantly, you know, reminding me like, hey, take your meds or, and he's extremely supportive in that if I say I need, I can't keep going. Like I need to take a break. Can we slow down? I don't feel good. You know, he's right there to, you know, pick things up when I was out for 12 days because I had my tonsils out. He took time off for 12 days and made a lot of instant mashed potatoes. And, you know, every time that I quit a job because I had doctor's appointments, he was just like, okay, you know, we'll make it work. And he's always said, your health comes first. You will figure out the rest, but your health comes first. And, you know, I'm very, very fortunate for that. And I always joke and I said, you know, the one blessing that I was given by the universe, it was to have him as a husband, then I'll take that. <laughs> like, I'm okay with that. And, you know, even my daughter is 
so supportive in her own little nine-year-old Hermione type way. You know, we walk into a thrift store and a lady just looks at me and I have Max and she's like, we don't allow pets in here. And there's my daughter before I can even get a word out. She's like, that's my mom's service animal. She needs him. (laughs) And I'm just like, and then the lady looks at me, she's like, well, do you need him right now? But then my daughter, she needs him all the time. Like, good for her. <laughs> I was like, oh, yep, that's my kid. <laughs> like, it's forever a work in progress. It's yeah. forever advocacy. And, you know, it's constant teaching myself lessons to then teach my daughter those lessons too. And she gets them far better than I do. And she's nine and I'm 37. So I guess I'm kind of doing something right on the motherhood part, but the self-parenting, I could use some work. (laughs) I think it's great that she's got two great role models on, it sounds like communicating with each other and showing that give and take of being able to ask for things that you need and being given that by the other person. So I think that's wonderful role modeling for her and a lot of people could use that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, it's so hard, you know, being an educator, I see so many kids that if they just had a more supportive environment at home, then, you know, perhaps things wouldn't be as challenging for them at school. If they had a, a more structured and safe environment that role modeled those things for them. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I know you mentioned that you went to a scleroderma conference because you were curious about if it's genetic or not. Are there things that you think about when you are planning for the future? Like, are you thinking about if you have another kid or are there things that you have to look out for with Lily's health, things like that? Yeah. So First and foremost, when I went to the scleroderma conference, I found out that they say that it's like 2% that you'll pass on the genetics for scleroderma. Okay, um, that's good. Yeah, which, which is great. And because it's 2% or less, they can't say that it's a possibility or it's a definitive yes. And they, for the way that it came out, they're like, well, even if you did pass it on, it's the, like the genotype that they couldn't say that they would get scleroderma, which one they would get if it would present as a different autoimmune disease, fibromyalgia or, or something else. And I was like, well, you know, that's great to hear because that is a concern. And then, you know, I started to think about that when we couldn't get pregnant for six years, like, does this have something to do with scleroderma? And so it's always any time, unless there's a clear connection to, you know, like, for example, my COPD, that's clearly connected to, you know, me being born premature. So that's, you know, case closed on that one. But any outliers that don't really have a whole lot of explanation, you know, I'm just like, okay, well, is that an immune thing? Is it stress? Is it trauma related? And most of the time it's trauma related. (laughs) Uh, Because what, what people don't realize in the way I explain it to them is, you know, if you did a CT scan or an MRI of my brain, I would have a traumatic brain injury because that's the amount of trauma that I've gone through has literally rewired my brain. So in that aspect, 
you know, I say that to say this, that trauma is passed on if it's not healed in, in this environment. So if I did not, you know, pull myself up and get with the program and put in the work to stop this and break these chains of these cycles of generational trauma, then I would be passing that on to my daughter. And that's where I was just like, nope, I'm, I'm not doing this. Like with everything that I've gone through, you know, something is in me that I'm, I'm not passing this on. This ends here. I've had two miscarriages. One, I didn't know I was pregnant until my fallopian tube ruptured. Um, so it was a, a topic pregnancy. And so that was interesting. That was quite painful stomachache. <laughs> and so that was a couple of years ago when that happened. And then, so then I think like a year later I got pregnant and I knew I was pregnant. So that was like, Oh, yay. Kind of a shock, but yay. And then like five days later, I had a miscarriage, which like, okay, odd. I don't really know what that attributed to. It's hard to definitively say, but looking towards the future, you know, my husband and I start talking about when we build our house for retirement, we're going to need 36 inch wide doors because there's a possibility that one of us just might be in a wheelchair. It's probably going to be me, you know, Uh, but you never know. But it's just good to have those things, you know, the, the handicap bars in place and the first floor master and the extra things of like, okay, we can't retire where we live because there's no specialists here. There's no major medical. And I already, I already need those things now. And I'm independent now. What happens when I am no longer as independent and, you know, I can't drive myself. So those are the things that I think about career-wise I do think about like I could never be a elementary school teacher because I'm not going to be able to run around with the kids I can't do that now so it does you do start to think of how life will be a little bit different and the things that you have to plan for even health insurance we are very fortunate that our health insurance is not nearly as expensive as it is for civilians which is crazy like it just blows my mind the amount like I a bachelor's degree is in health administration so it completely blows my mind the, the price of health care but that's something to think of as we get older too like we're gonna need all these specialists especially me yeah um, and, and what does that look like for us financially but I am looking forward to being older those rocking chairs are pretty sweet and <laughs> You know, and just chilling out on life and not having to worry about much of anything. But I kind of do that now anyways. It's good to keep the blood pressure down. And it's a whole lot of constantly changing my perspective. If I start to see things in a, a negative light or the low is me, you know, I acknowledge that. I acknowledge, okay, you, you depresso, like <laughs> what's going on here? Like. How can we fix this? Do, do we need to, well, we need to acknowledge it, but then what else can we do? And that's, that's always been with me. This ability to try to find a different perspective, to pull myself out of whatever mindset that I'm in. 
but now I do it with purpose and with recognizing the emotion that I'm in before I pull myself into a different perspective. It's a lot to think about. Well, I think we're down to my last question. Just, do you have any final words for listeners? Anything that you've learned over the years that you'd give as advice or anything like that? Probiotics are your friend. If they taste bad, they're good for you. (laughs) (laughs) And that's pretty much what goes along (laughs) with all vitamins. And as I tell my daughter, she's like, get the gummy ones. They taste good. Yeah, they're rolled in sugar. You know, you're going to take these. (laughs) They taste like dirt, but they're good for you. (laughs) Drink water. I, yeah, water, water, water. And, you know, vitamins, probiotics, yogurt doesn't cut it, real probiotics. And just go out into the world. Try your very best to put you first. It is not selfish to put you first because you are all you have. You are all you are supposed to be responsible for because I can't be responsible for my daughter if I'm not taking care of myself. Yes. And it really is your mindset that you have to change. You have to live your life this way or there is no life to live. These autoimmune disorders, and and I will leave it at this, uh, stress, stress will kill you. Stress will make your life much, much worse. Even stressing about the diseases you have will bring more disease and more pain. And it will just continuously roll downhill. And you will find yourself on different medications, on stronger drugs, in and out of hospitals and it is very unfortunate and it is very challenging but there is help out there there are people that have said you know what there's got to be something else and find what works for you I tried everything you know I tried journaling I've tried art therapy all the things to work on myself because it worked for somebody else And most of the time, you'll know when something works for you and when something doesn't. And it has to work for you. And not everything that works for everybody is going to be your healthy way of healing. The best way that I found mine was psychology today. And I was like, look, I need some help. (laughs) Uh, And that's where things just kind of got way easier. Yeah. Gross vitamins in water and put yourself first. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Impressive how much that you've gone through (laughs) and, uh, you're, you're striving and you're thriving. You're, um, I mean, you're getting your masters. That's impressive. Yeah. It's, uh, it's weird. You know, (laughs) (laughs) I keep expecting somebody to knock on my door and be like, just kidding. Oh my gosh. (laughs) <laughs> that would be so sad right like did a cracker jack box what <laughs> so yeah. thank you thank you for having me this is my first time sharing any of my story in a public platform but i figured if it helps one person yeah. it's worth it
hope you enjoyed today's episode of Body Talk with Bex. If you haven't yet, make sure to hit the subscribe button and leave me a review if you enjoyed this episode. And if you feel like helping me to keep going here, please consider subscribing on my Patreon channel and as well on my social media where I can answer any questions that you guys have. And if you have someone that you know who would like to come on the show, please feel free to reach out to me. I am always looking for new people with new stories to come on and share their experiences with us. Thanks for listening.